From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. As I open the freezer, of course, the peas fall out, uh, and then the ice tray, and then last week's dinner. And even in my half-awake stupor, I just find my hands moving into the right spot to catch all these items as they fall out of the freezer. It was Victor's first time in New York. He was in eighth grade, visiting with his parents for a family reunion, and he was excited to be there. He walked in awe among the towering skyscrapers, but unlike other children, his wonder was not due to how high they shot up into the sky. No, Victor was entranced, because he knew, like you know if you were a reader of comic books, that those buildings are the playgrounds of superheroes. I mean, the first thing I looked for was the Empire State Building. Because that, that's kind of just iconic of not just New York, but of New York from a certain time period. And from that time period is when most superheroes began. So like for me, it was more like retracing a history of characters that I was familiar with when I was young. I was like, it was a much more personal connection. Victor had never been to the Empire State Building before, nor to any other part of the city but he felt like he had already been there because of the comic books he had spent so many hours reading. They definitely felt familiar because the the artists who draw those comic books, they used to mostly live in New York, and they would just use the building as reference for the characters living in the city. So, yeah, definitely you feel a sense of familiarity with with landmarks because you've already seen them, maybe not through your own eyes, but like through the character's eyes. Each landmark that Victor visited triggered a flashback to an epic battle or well-penned skyline. I'm thinking specifically uh, when my family, it was my parents and I, we had walked across the Brooklyn Bridge, and I can remember thinking to myself, oh, hey, that's where Gwen Stacy died when Spider-Man fought the Green Goblin. But obviously she didn't because it's a fake story. But... um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like looking over the water, you just kind of get the whole skyline, and you can see like exactly where they based that whole fight scene. And they kind of they kind of replicated that in the in the movie, the Spider-Man movie. Victor didn't return to the city until after he graduated from college. He was older, wiser, and about to start a master's program at the NYU Film School. Things had changed for him. But the city still had glimmers of that fantastical place from his childhood. Um, I, I think when I got here, the second time when I moved into the city to, to start my uh, master's program, that I, I definitely wish I could like, look up and see Spider-Man swinging through the, the buildings. The longer he lived in the city, the more the magic faded. I'm in grad school right now, and I go to work, so there's a lot more uh, responsibility to it, which kind of detracts from, you know, the the general sense of awe that you would get, because when you're going past Grand Central or Bryant Park or the New York Public Library every day, it does kind of lose some of that childhood luster that you had brought with you the first time, so... Ah, yeah. Uh, I guess it's the main difference is that I'm I'm older and (laughs) worried about other things. The connections he made as a child, however, have not faded completely. My own experience with seeing these landmarks from comic books, uh, yeah, I mean, you you do feel a little bit more familiar with the area. I don't know, the Empire State Building uh, and, like, the Chrysler Building, seeing them, and being reminded of when you would see them in comic books as a child of earlier times when there were were less things to worry about. But yeah, I guess it it does create a little bit more familiarity and makes you feel more at home. New York reminds him of the earlier, more carefree time of his childhood. But the influence of comic books does not just pull Victor to the past. It's also helping direct his future. It's funny that you mentioned that because the first thing I did was uh, apply to work at Marvel Comics, and uh, that's actually where I'm interning right now. Um, so I'm an editorial intern at the place that makes the comics that I read when I grew up.
And that's the unexpected power of superheroes. On first glance, they seem so simple, just two-dimensional characters that belong to our childhoods. But in those simpler times, they can burrow down deep into us, waiting to pop up and help direct the course of our lives. They can influence our perceptions of a city, of our homes, and even how we go about our work. From KZSU in Stanford, California, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Each week, we bring you stories of all kinds that explore a single question or theme. This week on the show, Unexpected Superheroes. Stories of costume crusaders appearing where you'd never think to look and battling for causes you'd never have imagined. First, Lee Constantino talks with Professor Scott Bucottman and finds comic book superheroes have followed the esteemed professor from his childhood to the halls and classrooms of academia. Next, Matt Larson heads out to discover the super abilities and superheroes hiding in plain sight. After listening, you might not ever look at your co-workers or fellow students the same way again. Finally, I tell the story of Robert Walker, a comic book illustrator who created a group of superheroes that fights one of the most vicious killers on Earth. No, it's not Hitler or Lex Luthor. It's HIV-AIDS. Put on your cape, kick up your feet, and ignore the bat signal, because you're listening to the Stanford Storytelling Project. Stay with us. If you are a scholar and professor with a deep love for superheroes, it might seem wise to keep that particular passion quiet. In our first story of the show, however, Stanford's Professor Scott Bucatman shows us that you don't have to choose between being an academic or a fan. Lee Constantino has the interview. Uh, I'm Scott Bucatman. I teach film studies in the Department of Art and Art History here at Stanford. Well, Scott, we're talking to you about your interest in uh, superheroes and the way that superheroes appear in your work and maybe in your life as well. But what are your first memories of reading superhero comic books? Oh, I mean, I, I've read them my whole life, I suppose. I mean, I remember reading Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four, especially when I was growing up. I was definitely a Marvel kid. I was buying multiple copies and, you know, books that were just tangentially related to other books, but I liked the whole Marvel Universe thing with the interacting heroes. I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, luckily, as I was growing up, superhero comics were sort of growing up too, uh, getting more sophisticated in their writing, in their art, in the treatment of the characters. So with some brief breaks here and there, I kept reading them uh, off and on. And uh, at the moment, there's such an explosion of incredible comics material, not just superhero comics, but comics of every stripe. I think it's the most exciting medium going right now. And among the things where there's good work being done, there's mm -hmm. superhero comics. And when you were growing up, what did, what did those stories mean to you? I like the dynamism of them. I mean, I, I think I enjoyed reading Spider-Man because I liked the character of Spider-Man and Peter Parker and that whole world that was there. But I found I, I didn't really go back and reread those as much as I would go back and reread the Fantastic Four comics by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. And certainly, I was very interested in the artists at that time. There weren't that many different writers. And other than Stan Lee, the writing was pretty interchangeable from one writer to another. But Kirby's artwork just leapt out at me, and I found it incredibly exciting and cosmic. It had big ideas going, and I think that pretty much fed into a fondness for science fiction that came about, you know, my teenage years. I think Fantastic Four fed right into Stanley Kubrick. And I don't want to date myself too badly, but it's around the time that I got out of college that this explosion of more interesting comics material started to happen in the late 70s and early 80s. And that was a really opportune moment to start buying in again. And I, you know, I was never, you know, buying truckloads of the things. I guess maybe at some points in my life I was, but mostly I was being pretty selective. But there was a lot to choose from then. I went to Brown University back when they had a major in something called semiotics, and it was uh, the science of signs and meaning, and it was very, very highfalutin, and I managed to convince my parents that it was the coming thing, that it was important. Semiotics probably allowed me to take 
things that I liked seriously. Uh, at the time, Umberto Eco was writing a lot of literary theory, and he was happily writing about Superman and James Bond and Batman versus James Joyce's Ulysses and which was an open text and which was closed, and providing all these hilarious, counterintuitive ways of understanding what we call popular culture and taking it seriously. And I think that had a real impact on me, actually. Uh, even if I didn't use the methodology of semiotics, it certainly became evident to me that anything could be potentially as interesting as anything else. What I try to do in writing about superheroes or anything like that is I try not to, and this goes back to my rejection of semiotics as a kind of model, I try not to make what I'm dealing with overly serious. In other words, I don't want to justify my relation to superhero comics by finding deep meanings that somehow make it all okay that we can study them and that they're legitimate uh, objects of discourse. I sort of want to get at the fascination that I felt then and feel now, uh, which may, in fact, in the case of something like superheroes, lie in how unserious they are. So can you write seriously about something while still regarding it as unserious, as frivolous, as playful? And can you somehow match that in your own writing? Uh, and I think that's been a more productive approach than trying to find the deeper meanings in superheroes and find Oedipal conflicts and trauma and guilt and all the things that are weighing down uh, superhero films these days. Uh, I prefer to go for the sort of weightlessness of Superman and the sort of joy of, of, of that kind of character as opposed to the adult trauma that they suffer from. I think it would be fun to be a superhero. I don't know. Uh, when I left New York uh, after my doctorate and got a job in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I, I became really obsessed with cities. And what I sort of realized was that superheroes almost all lived in cities. And I was wondering why. There was a dumb answer to that, which was criminals are in the cities. But, you know, superheroes can travel real fast. They got the Batmobile. They can fly. They're, they're the Flash, whatever. And they don't have to be that close to the crime. Uh, so there, maybe there was something else. And I started thinking about superheroes as sort of fundamental urban types. First of all, um, superheroes have dual identities. Where but in a large city could you get away with having a dual identity? I mean, Superboy comics are bending over backwards to, like, give Superboy these robots to fool everybody so that he can, you know, be in two places at once. But, you know, Superman didn't need robots. You know, it was a big city. He could duck into a closet here and appear as Superman there, and, you know, nobody would, except Lois for 40 years, you know, would wonder about, you know, where, where Clark was all that time. So there was a way in which, just like in musicals where you would go out there a youngster and come back a star, you could come to the city and become someone, someone public, someone flamboyant, someone performative, uh, all those things that cities inculcate. Um, you know, Georg Zimmel in an essay he wrote in the early part of the century called The Metropolis and Mental Life said, the city is bad because everybody is reduced to a function and a number and anonymity, but on the other hand, the city is also the place where you can really stand out where you can really people would come from a small town as Superman did come from a small town to the city to become something to remake yourself and the city was all about that and it struck me this was absolutely the 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 archetype of the superhero narrative so again and again I just started seeing that uh, and I concentrated on three Superman Batman and Spider-Man as not only all being urban denizens but of having three different relationships to the city Superman looked at the city from above and with x-ray visions. So there was a sense of mastery and transparency and openness and democracy despite the surveillance, a kind of openness about the surveillance, so a kind of democratic Superman. You had Batman in the Bat Cave underneath and uh, knowing the catacombs with his computers and his maps and his technology, sort of understanding the city from below. And you had Spider-Man, the teenager, swinging around the city on a web and clinging to buildings 
things with his fingers, a very tactile relationship, a very sensual, you know, his spider sense, a very sensual relationship to the city. Uh, but nevertheless, these were three ways of knowing the city, three paradigms of, of urban knowledge that were, you know, incarnated by these guys. So I was really sort of taken by how, you know, how much superheroes and cities went together. I would pull a lot of pictures down, you know, from uh, online sources and look at them. And again and again, I just kept seeing, you know, uh, Batman in Gotham City in all kinds of interesting ways and Superman in Metropolis in all kinds of interesting ways. And this was a really recurring motif. And again, as I said, I had left New York. I had New York on the brain and was missing New York. And here was, you know, something that was fundamentally New York to me growing up was where the Marvel comics, which were all set in New York. I mean, Batman, you know, was Gotham City, which was really New York, and Superman was in Metropolis, which was really New York, but a different New York. But, you know, all the Marvel characters lived in New York. They were my neighbors, essentially. They even had neighborhoods. I mean, I knew where they lived. Um, so there was a way in which that was certainly retapping into a sort of, you know, fondness of mine. But I'd also been, you know, writing these essays about Blade Runner about musicals. I'd been teaching a course, which I still do, called Cinema and the City, and thinking about urban representation and the ways in which, you know, the city is figured in different media, and that was all sort of informing my looking at these and discovering that, huh, here's here's a major text, I and mean, here's a major urban text that no one's really discussed before. Um, so I think it was somehow generated by nostalgia as some sort of initial impetus, but then a sort of logical conclusion of the work I'd been doing, uh, reading and writing about cities, and so a kind of cultural history that was emerging out of that. Certainly when I was younger, I did feel that there were more there was more of a sense of possibility of what selves I would turn out to be. Uh, now I seem to be sort of stuck with the identity that, uh, you know, crept up on me over the years. But, you know, back then it was a, who knows, who knows what I could be. Um, so there is that sense of, of perhaps a desire for multiple identities, a desire for, you know, well, a recognition that we are different people to different people at different times. Um, and, and superheroes make that explicit, but still I think there was more of a sense of the possibility, and especially when you're a child, that you could be this and that. Choices didn't have to be made, you know. Um, very appealing fantasy now that I think about it. I think the revival of the superhero film has more to do with special effects. I think it can be summed up in three letters, CGI. Uh, Computer-generated effects allow this passage from a prosaic human body to a super body that doesn't obey normal laws of physics. It can bounce off walls, it can fly, it can melt through materials, it can turn on fire, it can turn into ice, whatever. It can grow claws, you know, things that would be very difficult to do with mechanical effects or optical effects can now be done frighteningly easy with, you know, the proper computers. So the fact that it could be done, I think, is one reason why they've proliferated. I mean, the special effects made it possible. But I think also, um, I think there's a, a, a potentially interesting way to understand it. If you think about special effects, I've written a lot about special effects, mostly of the earlier pre-digital uh, variety, um, that special effects were a way of envisioning future landscapes, future cities, of helping you think about the future. Was there a way or is there a way that the digital body in the superhero film is there a way that that becomes a way of thinking about our bodies in digital culture, in a culture that, you know, in which we live on Second Life, in which we navigate by GPS systems, in which the overlay of physical and virtual spaces is, you know, ever more complete and ever easier for us? Is there a way that the superhero who switches between human and digital bodies, you know, embodies some of that anxiety about what what the physical body is in a digital world. If you think about it, the forerunner of uh, Spider-Man in, in, you know, digital incarnation is not Terminator Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's the liquid metal Terminator in the second film who's done with digital technology and he morphs into whatever shape he wants and uh, is very fluid and, uh, you know, people have written about that extensively. I have too. 
But that really is the basis of the superhero body going from, you know, Tobey Maguire to this little CGI uh, rubbery, rubberoid figure, you know, swinging through New York. What's interesting to me is that much as I like the weightlessness of superheroes, there's a way in which I find the superhero movies to be on some level too weightless. And I think it's because there is not a real body at the center of it. Musicals presented... Fred Astaire dancing up a uh, dancing up the wall and dancing on the ceiling, but that was done with an in-camera special effect. It's a real body in a real space. When Kubrick had somebody walk up a wall and onto a ceiling in 2001, same trick exactly. Uh, Westerns have characters, you know, climbing up walls, but gravity is pulling them down and they have to strain to do it. Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man and Doc Ock zip up and down walls as though they're, you know, careening down a corridor on an office chair or something. They're just blithely, you know, sailing along. There's a way in which, you know, there's not enough, (laughs) and this is going to sound really weird, but there's not enough pain. There's not enough physical strain. There's not a sense of a body doing something. And I kind of think that might be why the stories are so loaded down with extraneous weight. Let's add more villains. Let's give him an ultra traumatic uh, uh, origin story. I mean, let's make him miserable. Uh, Let's, you know, invoke the Patriot Act. I mean, there's a way in which, you know, the superhero film by, by virtue of its special effects is so weightless as to be almost literally meaningless uh, and so there's a kind of artificial weight that's put on them like ballast you know to sort of weigh them down to the ground by freighting them with you know a lot of narrative uh, trauma and stress it used to be way back when well before my time you know superheroes were invented because they were a way of taking advantage of the cheap color printing that they could that they could use to make the comic books so you had slabs of yellow and red and brightly colored costumes now co- comics are co- colored digitally drawn digitally in many cases so one can say actually that the superhero in comics and in film is a digital incarnation any way you want to look at it but there is a way in which there's still um there's still something suitable, and there's something about the comic book which st- retains a kind of handmade sensibility, even though, you know, it has moved to uh, digital production on all levels. Uh, there still is, you know, an artist there, you know, drawing something. There is still a writer working with a, a, a script, and somehow those things are available to you directly in the comic book that you hold, not filtered through, you know, a million sensibilities between there and the finished product in the film. Uh, I don't want to denigrate film by any means, and I don't even want to denigrate blood blockbuster films in any way, but I just have not, you know, I've just, again, I just have not found them very compelling. And everybody really wants me to write about superhero films, but I keep coming up against the idea of, but I don't really like them. Uh, The most important question that I want to end with is, uh, A, what is your superpower? And then B, what is your kryptonite? Yeah, I have to say, as as the guy who wrote this book, Matters of Gravity, which was all about weightlessness, that I would have to go for the classic boy superpower of flying. Um, there is just something about that that, you know, seems to be at the core of my attraction to many of the things that I wrote about in the book Matters of Gravity, uh, musicals and superhero films. And I find, not superhero films, sorry, superhero comics, but I find musicals and superheroes actually strangely similar and special effects and science fiction. There's a way in which, you know, the defiance of gravity really, really um, appeals to me and really makes me want to, you know, emulate that in my writing to try to write something that is not heavy but which has, you know, but which has weight. <laughs> uh, so that's the sort of paradox. And what would my what would my kryptonite be? I would like to say kryptonite. That would be cool. Um, I would say that, you know, um, weight is my enemy. Yeah, on some level, you know, weightiness is my enemy, uh, which is why, you know, being at Stanford has been a kind of, you know, pleasurable struggle, um, you know, because this is a very, very weighty institution and I try to float as best I can. <laughs> Is Umberto Echo your arch nemesis? (laughs) Echo is my arch nemesis because he wrote about everything good way before I got there. I mean, uh, really, the nemesis of any academic is the people who are writing about what really interests you before you get to it. Um, Anxieties of influence. Well, uh, thank you, Scott. Sure. Thank you, Lee. Lee Constantino is a Ph.D. student in the English department at Stanford and the fiction editor for The Storytelling Project. His first novel, Pop Apocalypse, is on shelves now. 
You might think that superheroes live only in comic books and some are blockbusters. But in our second story of the show, Matt Larson shows that the people who couldn't possibly be superheroes are, and that they have fantastic superpowers you wouldn't come up with in your wildest dreams. So what's your superpower? I'm highly organized. And so when I, I know where everything is at all times, and if I'm out and about with my backpack on a hike or whatever, you need tissues, you need a Band-Aid, I've got it. I've got it all. You need some bacitracin, I probably have it. You need some gum or, or knife, I probably have that as well. So this is like a superhuman like utility belt, right? This is like a, like a Batman like belt with all your things in it. Absolutely. I have my utility belt. My mundane superpower is being able to figure out acronyms. Does that play out in real life? Can you abbreviate things or what, what else? I mean, if somebody gives me like a long phrase, I'll abbreviate it and I'll be like, what? Oh, I'll, I'll give one. Okay. <laughs> so if you were to shorten, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. T-R-I-S-F-M-I-T-P. <laughs> My superpower is mentally recording what I pay for everything and how much on sale I get it. <laughs> Mostly with clothing. Do you know how much you paid for that outfit? This outfit? Oh, I mean, I'd have to add it up, but I know that, like, I know that the shoes were 68 from 75, which is not a big deal off. The tank tops were buy one, get one free. The skirt was actually kind of pricey. The skirt was like 100 bucks. So do you have a super weakness, like uh, kryptonite? Yeah, paying, paying, <laughs> paying a lot of money for designer things. My mundane, everyday superpower is this weird ability to take small items like a, uh, like a small piece of food or a piece of wadded up paper and to throw it at uh, pretty long distances into uh, a small hole, like a, like a trash can, like a small trash can. I actually find it to be a, a, a huge time saver, I'd say that's its biggest use. So like when I'm making lunch at work and I don't want to walk across the room to throw away an avocado pit, I just sit in my chair and I, and I throw it into the trash. It saves me you know, seconds per day. The, uh, the one um, kryptonite I would say for the superpower is actually my wife. When I try to uh, perform this in the, uh, in, in the company of my wife, I don't seem to be able to do it. So this is performance anxiety then? I, I, I wouldn't call it that. I would, uh, I would, I would just say I, I, don't, I don't know what happens, but, uh, but she seems to hurt me. I do have one other kryptonite that I've, uh, an, an unrelated kryptonite that I've developed recently, and that is an inability to, um, to get jokes all of a sudden, I've, I've developed this. People start to tell jokes, and all of a sudden, I, I just, I'm just completely gripped by fear because I, I don't think I'm going to be able to get the joke, and I'm going to have to laugh awkwardly or explain that I don't get it. So now when I do this, um, I, I, I immediately, when someone starts to tell a joke, I immediately look over at my wife uh, in, in fear and, and hope that she'll, she'll at least tell me when to laugh, if not explain what the joke meant. So she's the kryptonite for throwing things, but for the joke, she might be your... Uh... What is it, the red sun of Krypton? <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's my red sun for jokes and my kryptonite for, uh, for throwing small things. What is your mundane superpower, your everyday talent? Every girl in front of me is naked. <laughs> so can you explain that a little bit? It just don't seem like they wear clothes. <laughs> At all. At all, in front of me, yeah. Well, I can filter out all the nice-looking girls. All the bad ones just not there at all. <laughs> Uh, slightly psychic. I have dreams that predict the future. I had a dream once that I was um, making love to a tall, strangly Asian man. And I was like, this is really strange. <laughs> a week later, I, I met my boyfriend who's very similar to that in appearance. <laughs> my superpower is the ability to shake two Excedrin out of the bottle on the first try. It's the exact dose. It was actually conferred to me from another who used to possess the skill. He cautioned me that it, it could fade if I didn't use it often enough, and, and sure enough, uh, with, with the years and lack of practice, my skill has deteriorated somewhat. Whenever I look at a clock in the morning, sometimes at night I notice that the time is uh, 9-11. I don't think it really has any connection to what happened on 9-11. I mean, I, I guess I could try to focus on 10-11 or 11-30. I would like to keep it classy and say uh, urban diction. Can you give me an example of urban diction? What does that mean? I guess if some, you know, words that have multiple meanings, like breezy, for instance, is one of um, my most common or well-publicized terms. 
it could mean it could be derogative or as a form of endearment like hey Sarah breezy what's popping or dang look at that breezy what a breezy <laughs> so so has this ever come in handy like have, have you ever used it for for good or or evil at work, definitely. Most people don't know what it means, so I can say it and people don't get offended or they look at me with a big question mark over their head and still give me over 20% tip. My superpower is that I catch things falling out of the refrigerator and the freezer. The thing about this superpower is that it, it exercises itself most often in the morning. And if the refrigerator is packed overly full or the freezer is packed overly full, and you open the door and things start to fall out, often I find myself almost in this trance-like state, ability to catch everything that falls out. Uh, a common example would be getting the coffee grounds out of the freezer in the morning. And as I open the freezer, of course, the peas fall out, uh, and then the ice tray, and then last week's dinner. And as these things are falling out, even in my half-awake stupor, I just find my hands moving into the right spot to catch all these items as they fall out of the freezer. Keep in mind that I can barely even hold a conversation at this time of the morning, but uh, in this circumstance, I seem to have this, this preternatural ability. My uh, mundane everyday superpower is winning games of rock, paper, scissors for inane prizes. So uh, once I was dating somebody, and uh, for about two years every morning, we would rock, paper, scissors for who had to make the coffee. And I never made the coffee. I won every time. So what is, what is your, your kryptonite? I would say my kryptonite is when this skill is needed for something that actually matters, I am terrible at it. I have never won any sort of objects of desire with rock, paper, scissors. I always lose. Well, I discovered it in high school. I have uh, the remarkable ability to, when I am watching television, change the station back whenever my TV program comes on, and uh, I can do this with multiple stations. Um, this is something that other people have noticed, and I'm actually kind of proud of, but uh, it proved invaluable for my summers of awkwardness on the couch with just like MTV and VH1 as my only friends. It would be like MTV Beach House, cut to commercial, and I'd go to like the Discovery Channel, see what was going on there. Sometimes there was a commercial over there. You'd pop over to like whatever you wanted, you know, VH1, what have you. And I would just, I just know when to turn it back to the Beach House. And it would always pick up right exactly when it started. I would cut nothing out. My superpower is being able to pack a car or a truck very efficiently, no you know, obvious gaps, and, and make sure that the stuff you have gets put somewhere. It's basically like a big jigsaw puzzle, except your pieces of the puzzle are stuff. The goal is, is to find a space for everything, and my biggest weakness is I hate to throw stuff away. If something has a useful life left, I want to make sure that it finds a spot, whether it's in the back of your car or somebody else's home or whatever, which means I accumulate a lot of stuff. And if you saw my garage, you'd know what I was talking about. If I had to pick a superpower, I think I would say that um, I have a really phenomenal and almost idiot savant-like ability to remember song lyrics, commercial jingles, anything set to music, preferably from probably like the mid to late 80s. Like if you needed um, a full transcript of MC Hammer's Stone Cold Ryman or any kind of early 90s country, hey, pretty lady, won't you give me a sign? I'd give anything to make you mine all mine. Like all of those sorts of things. You can really come to me anytime for that. I think my kryptonite would be, um, there are people that are like, oh man, I'm bad with names. Like I'm terrible with names, but I never forget a face. But for me, I have this entire, like all of this brain tissue just totally uh, wrapped up in storing all of these lyrics and jingles that not only do I forget names, I forget faces. And people will come up to me I'll introduce myself and they'll say, this is the sixth time we've met, <laughs> like that sort of thing. Or they'll come up to me and they'll start talking to me. They'll ask about like my parents or some projects I've been working on, a trip I was getting ready to take. Like clearly I've had kind of an in-depth conversation with this person in the past. And to my brain, it's like I've never seen them before. My brain is just so busy like curating all of that detailed information that I'm never going to need again about old songs.
Larson is a Ph.D. student in the biophysics program at Stanford and an assistant producer for the Stanford Storytelling Project. Batman fought the wicked in the fictional city of Gotham, and Superman protected the innocent in the made-up city of Metropolis. But the ability of superheroes to do good can extend beyond the fictional world and into our own. In our last story of the show, I bring you the tale of Robert Walker, a real man using fake superheroes to fight a big problem. found out about HIV AIDS at a very young age. A few family members died of it. I didn't understand what it was when I was young when it was happening. And then as I got older, especially when I moved to New York, I befriended quite a few close friends that died from it. And I befriended a lot of people that I found out along the way that they had just got infected. Just about a year ago, a friend of mine came to me and told me he just got infected with the disease. Robert Walker knows all the statistics on HIV AIDS, but to him, the cost is a lineup of friends and family members that have fallen victim to the disease. Some have just recently been infected, some have died, and others are still living with its long-term effects. And the only way he's living now is through dialysis once a week. And he had very strong complications of it about a week or two where he had to be in, go in the hospital because there was something going on. Robert wanted to help fight the disease, so he did what any concerned person would do. He became an activist. But Robert's activism isn't your everyday activism. Yes, he raises awareness of the disease, and yes, he raises money to help find a cure. But he does both through a means you might not expect. Comic books. I didn't know I was an activist, but I just knew I felt passionate about certain issues. Robert used that passion to develop a group of superheroes called the Omen. Like most superheroes, they wear colorful costumes and have special powers, and of course, impossibly chiseled physiques. But unlike most superheroes, all of the Omen have AIDS. I think it's, I guess, a metaphor to show that a person, even if you have the disease, you still are a powerful person, and you can still do powerful things that are unimaginable, that are beyond, that are out of this world. The revenue that I get for the OM and a certain percentage of that will go to HIV-AIDS nonprofit organizations. Um, that's definitely why the book is also being created, to add revenue to those services, and as well as support awareness. The combination of comic books and social issues seemed destined for Robert, who was exposed to both at an early age. I just take the experience from where I grew up and things that I feel passionate about, which are comic books, which are social issues. One of the topics of those social issues is AIDS, and so it just comes naturally to put it together. Robert, an African-American, grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and spent his early years in all-black neighborhoods and schools. He got his first taste of multiculturalism in middle school, and he found it wasn't quite a utopia. When I went to seventh grade, um, I guess the city officials there said we had to mix students from other races, from other neighborhoods to another neighborhood. So when I was in seventh grade, I went to a school in um, and uh, the part of Jacksonville called Ocean Way. And uh, it was basically an all-white school, but then bus school bus took us there. It took us like an hour and a half, and then we went to class there, and there was a lot of disagreements and racial tension there. And there was one point where this room was going to be a race riot, so they had to do a lot of security calls and everything and stuff like that when I was growing up. That riot never happened, but it helped shape his thinking and would influence his later work as a comic book creator. 
I think it has a real strong ingredient of that, yes. That experience, along with, you know, just other things along the way, helped uh, me to create this type of book or my voice that I want to speak through. The artistic ingredient of the book started for Robert even earlier. So when did you first start drawing? Oh, man, I was maybe three or two drawing on walls and I'm, you know. Did you get in trouble? Yeah, I got in trouble a little bit, but, you know, my parents understood. I grew up in a sort of artistic family. Like, my mother drew a little, my sister drew a little, my brother drew a lot, and I just saw those things growing up, and it, I think it just became a natural thing for me when I started drawing. And I used to draw, like, everything, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I wasn't perfect when I was little, but as as it kept on, I just that was my obsession was just illustrating and drawing, and I just never stopped. I felt like I was in another world. I escaped through my reality. Like if I was going through a bad time, or um, I was a little kid that wasn't the football player, I wasn't the the popular person, and all that other stuff. And I just felt like I created my own world where I was a creator and I dictated what was to happen. Um, I drew what I what I wanted to be was a superhero and have this fantastic life and all this other stuff. So that's what I got from it. It was just another fantasy world that I escaped to and I really escaped to it. Um, and then when I draw, I really feels like I'm there. Despite his passion for them, he didn't take to comic books so easily. The first time he read one, it actually scared him. And I guess I was like five, six, I don't know how old I was, maybe even younger than that. And I saw these books that looked like cartoons, but it was in the book, but they looked serious and it was scary to me when my first impression of them, because they were so detailed. You know what I mean? Me growing up watching Sesame Street and looking at the funny cartoons, you know what I mean? Like the whimsical cartoons. And then seeing a cartoon in a book that looked more serious was somehow more scary to me. That was my first impression of it. A few years later, he was able to overcome those initial fears, and his addiction began. Robert's attraction to comic books was similar to his reasons for loving drawing. It was a portal to a fantastic world where he could leave behind the problems he was facing. The first time I read the comic book and really got into it, it was sort of like I was in a trance when I started reading it. I saw all the pictures and reading the characters that were powerful and did anything they wanted to do. They looked cool. They were different, but yet they were the coolest things, and they had a lot of powers, and they had a lot of strengths and and dimension to them. And I, I wanted to be that. I wanted to be powerful. I wanted to look like them. I wanted to be in shape. Comic books didn't just provide escape to a fantasy world. They started to influence his thoughts about the real world as well. The image of a comic book, like the image of a, a comic book hero of a male and a female, those are my ideal of what a male and female should look like. Man should be muscular and strong, like Superman or, or Wolverine or whatever, and that's how a man should be, so that's how I you know, that was my identification of what a guy should be. And the uh, same for a woman. Like, I thought a woman could be resourceful and take care of herself and be strong. And, you know, it made a strong impression on me of how I saw what it was to be even a, a human man or woman. And it sort of had a spiritual sense as well as what the hero upheld, the good of man and the good of all kind and hold up certain morals and, and things like that. And I think it had a lot of influence on me in my life and what I try to live now, you know what I mean? So You kind of sound like a superhero character, you know, like uphold the good of man, fight for the right, and stand up to evil. Do you, do you see that in your life? I never really thought of it like that. Like, yeah, well, I mean, those are things I uphold. Like, I, I really want to do good by man, but I'm definitely human and have fallibilities and weaknesses. I'm not perfect, and nor, you know, nor is anybody else. But the main idea of what I try to portray is and not even thinking about a superhero about it, but just trying to be a human being and think about humanity. Uh, I 
think about injustices. I think about trying to do right as much as possible, trying to be honest as much as possible. By high school, Robert had already decided to make comic books professionally. One day I just decided, you know what, I want to go to New York and I want to become an, an artist of some kind. I want to definitely be, work for Marvel and DC. Robert's story of how he got up to New York would be a perfect anecdote for a motivational speaker or a self-help book. He called up a guy he'd met only once at a comic book convention a year before and asked him if he knew of anybody looking for a roommate in New York. He was like, sure, there's uh, two guys that are looking for a third roommate. And I was like, okay, cool. And then I went uh, on a bus up to New York without knowing really nobody there. I had $15 in my pocket. That was it. I went up to Marvel myself like basically every week, almost every other day and waited in to see if somebody would see me or whatever, and that, of course that didn't work. I befriended this, uh, the receptionist there, and we would talk and sit around, and I had a plan, and so I said, the next person that comes off the elevator, I'm just going to pick up, drop my artwork, and then see what happens. And then, so what happened was uh, that person did come off the elevator, and I did drop my artwork, and... The person that got off the elevator was helping me pick up my work and say, hey, this stuff is good. That was my first break into Marvel. I can't believe that actually worked. You, you dropped your art on the floor. and I mean, that's like such, you know, the cliche I, thing. Someone's just going to dis discover me, but it actually worked. I know, right? <laughs> I couldn't believe it either. When it, I, mean, I, mean, I didn't think about it back then, but thinking back, I was just like, wow. That was crazy. <laughs> the whole thing was crazy. I came up with $15. It just, that whole thing was crazy. I have no idea how that happened. Robert had achieved what he set out to do, but he soon found that it wasn't enough. Working in comics, when I worked at Marvel and worked in all the major comic book companies, I, I had my dream of, because that was my dream, was just drawing for Marvel or DC, and that was my dream. And I... It was sort of like I was. I actually got to my dream and started doing it. But as I was doing it, I really didn't feel satisfied about it. I had stories within me that I wanted to tell and certain things that I saw in the comic book industry that I felt comic books could do more about. And I was like, well, maybe I should do something. Maybe I should try a comic book company of my own. And people were telling me, no, it's going to be hard. It's this, it's that, it's all this other stuff. But it's something I really felt passionate about. And I thought comic books would also be a tool to help people understand or to weigh social awareness about certain ills that we have in our world today. One instance in particular helped Robert decide to strike out on his own. It was around September the 11th. And then I was in the comic book store, and then, you know, the Twin Towers, and I was really thinking about life changes and all of those stuff. And it was this group of kids, I guess they came from school or something. It was a, a mix of kids. It was mostly boys with some girls there and stuff. And so one guy said I could be Superman, and one kid said I could be Batman. One, you know, one girl said I could be Wonder Woman, and a black girl said I wish I could be white. Then I could be a superhero. And that blew my mind, because I looked around at that time, there were no African-American females that was leading a comic book on their own series. I was just really taken aback by it, and I was creating this character in my head already, and this character would be a, a cyber witch that would have magic and technology mixed up into each other, as called Cybertech. And I was actually going to either make her a redhead or an Asian, and then that struck me. It was like, why not make her African-American? The result of Robert's work was his first independent book, Delete, named after the principal character. Delete was a strong, independent, African-American woman, a role model that the little girl in the comic book store could look up to. Creating this comic book was the start of Robert's actual dream, using comic books to further the causes he cared about. The next logical step was to take on the disease that had affected the lives of so many of his friends and family members, HIV-AIDS. If he was going to do it, though, he wanted to do it right. I always wanted to tackle the book and the creation of it, but I was always kind of apprehensive to do so because I didn't want to glamorize the virus, but at the same time, I didn't want to downgrade people who have the virus. 
So I decided to just do superheroes that have the virus and tell it with truth and not try to make it one side or either way or the other. Just if a person has the virus, what do they go through? I mean, I know people that have it that goes through it every day. I have uh, medical doctors that work as consultants. So how I try to work it is create the character and just have the character have the virus and tell the truth about the virus. And and the reason why I created a superhero team is to show that different types of people can have the infection no matter who you are. The Omen weren't born with powers, and like Robert just alluded to, there are all different types of people from varied backgrounds. Some are rich, some are poor. Most got the disease through an irresponsible lifestyle, but one character was born with the disease, and another got it from an unfaithful husband. Their lives merge when they all, along with hundreds of others, undergo a treatment that promises to be a cure for the disease. At first the treatment seems promising, but then the force of the disease returns, many times stronger. Most of the people who received the treatment died, but some acquire special abilities, along with the more potent form of the disease. These few become the omen. Their mission is to find out who is behind the deadly antidote. The way I'm creating uh, you know, the story is, first they have a mission that they're going about, right? And so they're trying to find this nefarious evil organization that did this thing, and so they're trying to find the head of that. But doing that, whole situation, they are going to grow into activists. So far, Robert has only published two prologue issues. Issue number one is set to come out this July. At this point, most of the characters aren't really HIV-AIDS activists. They're just budding superheroes. But the books are already pretty explicit about their purpose. The back pages are filled with Q&As, articles, and listings for HIV-AIDS hotlines. But Robert's message is also deeply entwined in the story itself. Some of the characters' powers are inspired by the disease, like the character Eros, a male model who can control the energy of attraction people feel towards him and transform it into kinetic energy. The way you catch HIV and AIDS is through certain methods of attraction. It's not going to be an ugly thing or nobody will be catching it. You know what I mean? The way that you get it. So a lot of ways you, the ways of getting the disease is by something that is something seductive. Like sex is seductive, of course, as well as if you use drugs or, or anything like that. That's very seductive. And I think I embody the power of arrows of having that. I try to metaphorically show their powers with the overall characteristics of AIDS. And one of the characteristics of AIDS to me is seduction, so I wanted to make a character that was very seductive. Another member of the Omen is Goth, who has the ability to take on the characteristics of whatever kills him. If you riddle Goth with bullets, he'll die for a few seconds, and then come back to life and attack you, his hands and feet hitting with the speed and force of the bullets you shot at him. To me, Goth embodies, you can uprise and live and be powerful. It's sort of like a phoenix type of thing, you know what I mean? Like if, if you know, I if I went for a testing and then, and the doctor told me for the first time, you know, you have HIV or AIDS, I would feel like, oh, my life is over. And that's what I hear from a lot of people that find out they just got infected. They go through a depression, they go through this and through that. But then they live again. Some people live life even more. You know, they appreciate life even more so. That's what I think, unconsciously, what I was doing with Goth. Robert's message to his readers goes far beyond metaphor. In one section, a character opines on how everyone is at risk to catch the disease. And later on, another character is just pressured to have sex without a condom. At times, it is a little heavy-handed, but Robert says he tries to avoid this. I, I think I try to put the characters in situations where it won't seem like a hokey public announcement, like especially in the positive issue, where you have two characters about to have sex and you see a condom. That happens in real-life situations. Even though this is a comic book, Robert wants it to reflect reality as much as possible. I just think of them as in the real world. They have one main issue, which is the whole HIV-AIDS story. That's the common thing about it. 
But at the same time, there are other issues at hand that they all deal with. I didn't want the book just to be about HIV and AIDS and it's nothing else that nobody else has to deal with. That's not a true situation. I wanted to make the situation as true as possible to show people in our world have AIDS. They still have the same problems they had before they had AIDS or HIV. That's just a, another issue that they have to deal with that's added on to them. Still, despite his efforts to mirror the real world, the situations sometimes seem forced and the dialogue overly dramatic. But I think this is very difficult to avoid when using an entertainment medium to fight for a social goal. And it wasn't blatant enough for me to stop reading. What really caught my attention was not the explicit social message, but the explicit content itself. It's a little, I know it's a little risque, but it's like compared, look at the videos we have today on MTV. Kids that are nine years old are looking at things on MTV, and they're looking at videos that are very highly sexualized. And that's why at the age of 14, statistics don't lie, kids are getting infected. So that's definitely because they're experimenting with sex. I know it's a little risk, I guess, considered risque in a way, but it's actually, kids are already, today, are informed of sexuality at a very early age. And so to really talk about the problem is to talk about how really, how to protect yourself from it or what the disease is about. I don't grow into triple X things, I don't think, but I definitely hit on issues where you really need to talk about exactly what the situation is because the, the formula that has been coming up is evidently not working. When talking about the disease, Robert tries to get to the emotional issues that come with it, as well as the medical ones. One of those issues or problems that I noticed when I was reading it is that some of the characters seem to have a lot of anger in them. W where does that come from? I think it even maybe even comes from I think maybe maybe I have a little anger just about whatever you know just about certain things that I feel that are injustices or just imagining a person that has HIV and AIDS or people that I've spoken with that has HIV and AIDS that just brings out even more certain things that they've already had or maybe didn't have before and they have it now. Like I know a few people of mine, like I have a friend of mine, he's had it for a while and he has no idea how he got it. We, You know, he's happy-go-lucky and certain things like that, but when we really talk, he, he's like, say, I can't even think about it right now. I don't even know how I got it. I was safe all this time. He talks about this certain situation where he got into a brawl and he had two people say, aha, now you got it because they bit him and they were bleeding. It was just blood and everything and stuff like that. And so he's wondering if he got it like that or because he was always careful and all this other stuff. And so he has a little, there's a little anger there with him with that and um, just other people that I've spoken with that I found that were infected by it. They definitely have a little anger in them. And the characters, I do want to represent that certain anger about how they feel about themselves, about how they perceive people see them, um, how they deal with their situations and their problems. Each character has their own certain thing that they have uh, that displays a little bit of angst about the disease. Robert named the omen after the failure to address the AIDS epidemic when it first arose because people dismissed it as just a gay disease. He says that ignoring it back then was a bad omen and that bias helped it spread to the critical level it's at today. But the name has a flip side to Robert as well. The arrival of a superhero team to battle the disease, along with dedicated workers around the real world, can be seen as a good omen for the future. Robert's sales of the comic book have been slowly increasing, but his experience tells him he still has a lot of work left to do. When I first put out the book and I was talking to different vendors about the book, uh, one vendor said he would never carry a feel-good book like this to anybody who has AIDS or HIV because he's like they deserve it because the only way you get AIDS is if you whore around. I was like dumbfounded. I was like amazed and dumbfounded. Someone, a vendor, a comic book vendor said this to me. I mean, you wrote this in an email to me. I was really like, wow, this is, if this person thinks like this and... To me, comic books help you to open your mind to things if you're an avid comic book reader in most cases. 
And if this person thinks like that, what does another person think, even more so from his town or from his background, how you know much more education and awareness could be put out there for a person like that? You can find out more about Robert Walker's work at www.omenplus.com. Well, super friends, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of the show. Today's program was produced by myself, Micah Craddy, with the help of Jonah Willingans. Thanks to Lee Constantino and Matt Larson for their stories. Original music was performed by Kissing Johnny and Noah Burbank. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford Continuing Studies, the Program in Oral Communication, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next time for Tales of the Apocalypse. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Micah Craddy.